This forum is part of the City Club's Sustainable NEO series, sponsored by Bank of America. We're grateful for their generous support. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO here at the City Club and a proud member. Today's Thursday, August 19th. You're joining us here with our annual State of the Great Lakes, brought to you virtually this year. You may recall a few years ago when the country's attention turned to indigenous water protectors in North Dakota. They stood up against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The plans for this pipeline would have crossed multiple waterways and threatened water safety for millions of people downriver, which included the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. Thousands of indigenous people from hundreds of tribal nations mobilized and made the journey to the Sacred Stone, Rosebud, or Ocheti Sakawin camps. The hashtag NoDAPL took over social media. Now, for many in this country, this event was their first glimpse into the fight over environmental justice by Native Americans. But in reality, this has been a generational fight going back centuries. The Great Lakes region, home to 21% of the world's surface freshwater, is also home to dozens of tribal nations who have been key leaders in the movement to protect our waterways, including our invited speaker today. Clevelanders know what it means to protect waterways. After all, the cleanup of the Cuyahoga is one of the world's great environmental success stories. And today we will talk candidly about how we transform the way in which we both think about and value water. Specifically, what if we extended legal personhood to bodies of water? For non-Native people, this is a concept that may seem innovative, even radical. Yet for many Indigenous in this country, this isn't radical at all because water is seen as a living relation. Today, we're excited to introduce Dr. Kelsey Leonard. She's a water scientist, legal scholar, policy expert, writer, and an enrolled citizen of the Chinnacock Nation. Dr. Leonard is an assistant professor in the Faculty of the Environment at the University of Waterloo, where her research focuses on indigenous water justice and its connection to climatic, territorial, and governance issues. She represents the Shinnecock Nation in the Mid-Atlantic Committee on the Ocean, which is charged with protecting America's oceanic ecosystems and coastlines. And she also serves as a member of the Great Lakes Water Quality Board of the International Joint Commission. She's been instrumental in safeguarding the interests of indigenous nations for environmental planning and builds indigenous science and knowledge into solutions for sustainable water and ocean governance. Moderating our conversation today is Dave Spratt. He's the Chief Executive Officer at the Institutes for Journalism and Natural Resources. For more than 20 years, Dave was a fixture at daily newspapers in both Colorado and Michigan. In 2012, he left the Detroit News to join the Institutes for Journalism and Natural Resources and became their CEO in 2013. He's a lifelong lover of the outdoors, a frequent end user of clean air, clean water, and healthy habitat, human and otherwise. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them in. Dave Spratt, Dr. Kelsey Leonard, welcome to the City Club. Thanks, Dan. Thank Great you. to have you with us. I'm going to leave the conversation in your very capable hands. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Um, I'd like to first thank Dan and Cynthia and all the folks at the City Club of Cleveland for this opportunity to speak with Dr. Kelsey Leonard uh, about a really fascinating topic and for the chance to actually dig out a dress shirt for the first time in 20 months. I'd forgotten where they were. Um, just before we dig in here, um, I'd just like to say that I am uh, located in Southeast Michigan near the Huron River, uh, which is the ancestral land of the Potawatomi people and happens to be in the Lake Erie watershed. So, um, Dr. Leonard, um, it's a common misconception. I, I'd like to get into a little background before we, we start to talk about the legal aspects of, um, of personhood for a body of water. So it's a common misconception that um, intergovernmental agreements regarding the Great Lakes, people automatically think the United States, Canada. Um, but in fact, there are numerous such agreements involving multiple sovereign nations. Um, can you give us a, a, a sense of the, the, um, the governance in the Great Lakes right now and who's involved? Definitely. Um, and such a 
whopper of a question, right? We sometimes hear too, uh, when we think about transboundary water governance, it's often referred to as a wicked problem or wicked water problem. And I think in a lot of ways that comes down to the governance aspects, particularly in the Great Lakes and between what we now know currently as Canada and the United States and the transboundary waters that run the entirety of that northern border. But what often goes misunderstood is when we think about that relationship between Canada and the United States in transboundary water governance, it goes back to an original agreement, the 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty between Canada and the United States, which basically set up the International Joint Commission as a dispute mechanism um, uh, or a body in which to hopefully uh, ensure that there would be less disputes over water between the Canada and the United States in this transboundary context. And so many people think of that 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty as the original transboundary waters treaty of what we now know as North America. But in reality, the governance context of this waterscape and of these different spaces and places and um, imagined borders is actually much more complex. It also includes indigenous nations. It includes the third sovereign. Um, and then even more so, it can be even more layered than that when we think about not only the United States, Canada, indigenous nations, but we also, also think about our local municipalities. We think about the states and the provinces. And so the state of transboundary water governance in across the northern border of the transboundary waters, but particularly in the Great Lakes, is very multi-jurisdictional, multi-layered, and includes many, many different scales of governance. But I just want to take a step, one step further uh, to what I had mentioned earlier before we uh, dive further in, to that 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty. When we think about that treaty again, many, there's, I think there might even be memes out there that, are, that say the first Transboundary Waters Treaty, it, it also sort of has that global context of being one of the original transboundary water agreements internationally. It wasn't the first one. Uh, transboundary water treaties have actually been around for quite some time, and many of them, even in what we now know as the Great Lakes region, were signed first with indigenous nations. So when we think about those um, quote-unquote Indian treaties, they actually talked a lot about water, and they talked a lot about the way in which we should govern water, have a connection and relationship to water. So when we think about what is the future of Great Lakes governance, it has to be grounded in those foundational treaties that supersede the 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty. Interesting. So can you tell us a little bit more about just some of the treaties, just give people an idea of some of the treaties that are in, in place? Oh, well, uh, I'd say we probably have more than, in the context of the Great Lakes, more than 400 different treaties. Because if we think about each individual indigenous nation, um, this is focused now on the Great Lakes, not the entirety of the transboundary waters uh, of the northern border. But if we think about the Great Lakes, there are over 200 uh, First Nations, tribal nations, Métis communities throughout the basin, um, extending even out along the St. Lawrence to the Atlantic coast. And so each of those nations has their own treaty with either the United States or Canada, maybe both in the context of um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. If we think about six nations of the Grand River, a first nation based in uh, what's currently known as Ontario, they have multiple treaties. Um, one even in the context, there is um, a treaty agreement called the Haldeman Tract, which says that they were uh, granted and guaranteed a portion of land that is inclusive of the Grand River. Um, and so even in that treaty, they have a governance role in the futurity of that Grand River, which outlets into uh, Lake Erie and is a part of the larger uh, Lake Erie Basin and also uh, the larger Great Lakes Basin. So that's one example, but there are hundreds to mention. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so clearly there's a deep connection between native nations and the Great Lakes. Um, and yet Ohio is home to no federally recognized tribes. Um, what should people know about Lake Erie's connection to native people? I think firstly is to, in the context of Ohio, is to recognize that Ohio is actually home to many indigenous nations. Um, 
they were just forcibly removed. So there is a violent history and a violent water history to what many Ohioans currently enjoy. Um, your ability to access safe and clean water is likely due to the displacement of indigenous nations and peoples. And so there, as we think about you know, 2020, 2021 has been a year of social justice reckoning. And there is a corollary aspect to social justice of environmental justice and within that umbrella of environmental justice is also water justice. And so it is to recognize that these mechanisms of erasure where we imagine spaces and places not to have indigenous peoples is a false reality. And it's a false reality often created through the logics of settler colonialism. If, if you know, to be able to settle and occupy a place, it's easier to do so if you imagine that it was barren before you got there, rather than to understand that you potentially, either through your direct action or lack of inaction, either through you or your ancestors, have a level of culpability and complicity in the violence that actually led to that barren land you now seem to occupy. And so that ties into water justice. It ties into the history of water colonialism and our current ability or inability to access clean, fresh water for, to meet our human needs, but also for the water itself to be healthy and thriving. If you think about indigenous peoples for the most part and those that used to call Ohio home, and many who still do just don't maybe live there physically right now, they had millennia of stewardship and conservation practices to maintain the healthiness of Lake Erie, of the tributaries, of the surrounding waterscapes that made it such a bountiful place for folks want to want to settle in. When they were removed, that traditional ecological knowledge was removed from the land. Those conservation practices were removed from the land and the water. And so what we're also seeing now with many of our environmental challenges and water challenges is those practices or, or that erasure of those practices coming to fruition and coming to a boiling point where the planet is saying, hey, you know, maybe you should be doing a little bit more to give back to me than constantly take, take, take for yourself. Um, and, and, and that is also indicative of, of that erasure and removal of indigenous peoples. So if I get to the second portion of your question, which is, you know, how is there still a contemporary connection? Well, Lake Erie still has many nations uh, that, even though it's you know, forcibly removed, have a historical connection to the lake. They still maintain ceremonial and cultural practices, even from a distance. Um, sometimes it's through traveling uh, to the area to be able to uh, maintain some of those conservation practices, although not at the height that they would have prior to removal. But then there's also, and that's sort of within a U.S. context. I speak to that because that's probably largely who our audience is today. But Lake Erie is an international water. That's how we started off this conversation. It's transboundary. There's multiple jurisdictions. Um, so it's a really big lake. And on the other side, the, the, what we sort of now know or refer to as the Canadian side, um, there are multiple First Nations. So we've got Walpole Island First Nation, Caldwell First Nation, Six Nations of the Grand River, Chippewa of the Thames, um, Moravian Delaware Nation. So there are all of these nations who still live um, and have their uh, existing territories uh, within the Lake Erie Basin or on Lake Erie and are consistently practicing water governance for the stewardship of Lake Erie and its tributaries throughout the basin. Great. Um, so you mentioned water justice, and it seems like every day we hear more stories about water crises across the globe, whether it's you know shortages in Cape Town, um, contamination that deprives people uh, of clean, safe drinking water, uh, such as happened in Flint, water affordability. We've got a shortage now declared in the southwestern U.S., uh, where that's a whole different level of sort of water fighting going on for a long time. Um, and so you've argued um, that our existing legal system has failed us in the area of water protection and that recognizing the personhood of bodies of water, such as Lake Erie, would reframe our legal system from one of rights to one of responsibility. Um, can you describe the concept of earth law and explain how earth law would benefit bodies of water and the people who depend upon them? 
Yes, thank you for that question. Well, Earth law, some folks may have heard of it referred to as ecocentric law. It's really where we're centering the environment. And it's an emerging body of law um, that really works towards protecting, restoring, uh, stabilizing the functional interdependency of Earth's life, of planetary life, as well as those sort of life support systems that keep our planet going, like the Great Lakes. Um, more so as well, uh, if we think about what how we might refer to Earth law in, in a more lay term, it also is allowing for nature to operate naturally, to do its thing. Sometimes as humans, we just can't help but interfere, and we do so in such a manner that is more counterintuitive to nature's health than actually productive and, and helpful. Sometimes Earth law is expressed through constitutional changes or amendments. It could be through statutory law, common law, customary law, um, and it's encompassing of a lot of different types of legal frameworks that you may be aware you may be aware of today. So it can be rights of nature movements, which is related to the recognition of personality of natural entities like water or mountains or trees. Uh, it also can be through uh, thinking about human rights or human environmental rights. It can be thinking through rights of future generations in the context of climate change, uh, animal rights, indigenous law as it pertains to uh, the rights of the planet, Mother Earth, uh, and different natural entities. So it's pretty um, encompassing, but also future-oriented. And, and I'll say to what you asked earlier as to where I think this can take us. It's not necessarily that our legal system failed us in the past. I think right now it's saying that our legal system isn't able to modernize. It's not able to be adaptive to our existing climate crisis. And so this emerging body of law is coming forward, um, although maybe indigenous peoples have been doing this for thousands of years, um, which is why we maintain 80% of the world's biodiversity uh, as per a recent study by UBC. Um, but that said, the rest of the world you know, needs to learn from us, needs to catch up a bit. Um, and so we see this emerging body of law happening in traditionally Western legal systems, as referred to as Earth law. And I think it's it's coming forward because, again, the existing legal system isn't able to be adaptive. It's not able to, and when you're not able to adapt, you can't create resilient systems. You can't create systems in which you are able to respond to the frequency and increased frequency of climatic changes that we're seeing from wildfires to droughts to sea level rise. And so our past legal system may have been innovative in creating things like the Clean Water Act and other types of Clean Air Act, other types of environmental legislation. And they were made for a distinct point in our history uh, and distinct changes that we were facing at that point in time. But we're facing different changes now. We're facing a different crisis, unfortunately, with the IPCC report that came out recently, uh, we've now been deemed as being in code red. Um, maybe that warning level will be more, uh, in, you know, more of a catalyst for folks to act. Um, but I think as indigenous peoples, we felt like we've been in code red for quite some time, being on the front line, the front lines of climate change. And so we need more. And we need, and I think that Earth law could be the potential catalyzing force to have us act rather than passively react to these climatic changes. Yeah. Ha has this concept been tested uh, in, in any courts to date? So globally, yes, it has been tested in courts. Um, I would say that we have some really interesting initiatives happening in the context of the United States. We had the um, Lake Erie Bill of Rights that was put forward by um, through a grassroots movement in the city of Toledo. Um, unfortunately, that was tested in the courts and went through a series of appeals um, and recently came down uh, through the Ohio court system being struck down. Um, and so that Bill of Rights was uh, you know, deemed um, not able to move forward by the court. I think that there are some grassroots activists that are going to be looking to take up that initiative. And for those listening in, if you want to make sure that Lake Erie has the uh, recognition of its legal personality and its right as a natural entity to exist, thrive, flourish, and evolve, um, I would encourage you to reach out, you know, be a, a water citizen of Ohio and fight for Lake Erie. Uh, you can create your own Lake Erie Bill of Rights. You can pass resolutions. You can fight at the state level for a constitutional amendment. We're seeing a lot of green amendments happening right now. 
going forward through the legislative process in different states across the United States to, to, to fight for nature and to say that nature has a right to exist alongside us as human beings and that our rights as human beings are not superior to nature. Um, that's pretty counterintuitive from what we've been doing in the past few hundred years in the Western world. Um, so I think as citizens, there's, there's many, many actions that folks can take. Uh, these, these types of earth law initiatives are being challenged in the courts, but there's also some really successful examples. Um, and many of them are indigenous led. Uh, we've got the uh, Whanganui River in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, that through a collaborative co-management uh, governance agreement between indigenous and, and non-indigenous um, individuals ha has recognized the rights of that river to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve. And then we saw also indigenous-led examples in California recognizing the rights of the Klamath River by the Yurok tribe. And as was mentioned earlier in the context, in the opening, in the context of indigenous water protectors, the um, White Earth Ojibwe Nation recognized the rights of Monoman or wild rice, and that recently um, has gone through uh, the tribal court, um, is, is, in, uh, is under review currently by the tribal court because they have said that that law that was passed in 2018, I believe, by the tribe um, is being violated by Enbridge and the proliferation of the pipeline line three. Um, and so we'll see how that also is, is tested and whether there is legal action uh, that will be uh, found um, for Enbridge being in violation of that natural law. And, and really all this, you know, for some of those folks listening in, this may sound like a lot of legal jargon. It may sound like a lot of, uh, you know, um, legalese, I, you know, is, is the term. And oftentimes it is, we, we have a, a system, the law is a part of our moral compass and societal values that we set up in the Western world. But I also don't want you to lose the, uh, the connection or the understanding that these are real people. Um, there are water defenders, water protectors in line three and line five camps right now fighting and, and being arrested and being put in, um, you know, horrible jailed conditions to fight for clean water in the Great Lakes Basin. And so I just don't want folks to lose sight of that. You know, Earth Law is an emerging body of law, but hopefully it's so that folks don't have to put their bodies on the line and be wounded just to ensure that future generations have clean water. Yeah. So regarding the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, if I could just circle back to that briefly, um, what what were the can you summarize sort of the arguments for striking it down? And does that offer any blueprint for future efforts? Oh, it's a really great question. I think that, you know, I would encourage those listening in to, to go and to look at some of the court transcripts, to look at the opinions and the findings of the justices. If you want to do more of a close read, particularly if you're looking to see how to um, maybe defend against some of those arguments put forward against the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. I, I think in large part though, the opposition to earth law, the opposition to the recognition of the inherent rights of nature is largely economic driven. Um, it's also largely um, supremacist in many ways. Humans don't like to feel like they can't dominate nature. You've been conditioned to believe that you can for hundreds of years. And so we are in need of a very um, moral transformative shift in our way of thinking uh, to understand that our benefits and our um, need and, and needs when it comes to water on this planet don't necessarily need to supersede the needs of the water itself or the other ecosystems that rely on that water. Um, and so that was really where much of the challenges come from is, um, is just, is a feeling that in that recognition, you could jeopardize human rights you could and, and human access rights really. It's, and also it's not really human rights in the context of our of, of civil liberties. It's, it's human rights in the context of my property rights or my economic rights um, to water and how I use that water. And so you could think logically around industry, around agriculture, all of which are major lobbies in the state of Ohio and the larger Great Lakes Basin. Um, and so my hope is that, you know, we can create initiatives within sort of the umbrella of earth law, recognizing the inherent rights of nature that maybe are more collaborative where industry and ag actually recognize the benefits of, an, of a healthy ecosystem for, for business. There are economic uh, lenses to this work. And, and I think it really, it comes back to that original question around what does transboundary governance of the Great Lakes look like? It means that we have to have more seats at the table more folks participating in decision-making 
and hopefully more collaborative consensus building around what rights of nature looks like in the context of the Great Lakes or rights of the Great Lakes may look like moving forward. Yeah, that's, a, that's really interesting. Um, so for people who would like to better understand some of these concepts, um, are there readings you could recommend or things you could sort of send us to to just get a better sense of this whole um, idea? Yes, well, I'll start at a really high level. If there are any uh, law professors or um, you know, even political science or pre-law professors, maybe even environmental studies, you know, anyone that, that is an instructor. There's a new Earth Law textbook that actually came out um, last fall. And so that is, uh, if you just type in Earth Law textbook, it's the first of its kind in the world. So you can uh, definitely go and check that out. You can use it for your classroom. You can take a snippet out. There are case studies included. So you could do a mock trial that relates to Earth Law. Lots of really fun uh, ways to integrate Earth Law into your classroom. Because we also need to teach a new generation of thinkers to think in an earth law way, um, rather than to think it in a more uh, sort of Western traditional form, uh, enlightenment form of domination over nature. So that's one uh, recommendation I would give. The other is sometimes as adults, we are set in our ways. It's really hard to change our minds about how we interact with the natural world. Um, so if we do wanna do that, maybe we tap into our inner child or we focus on educating again, the younger people on our planet because they really are our future. So to do that, I have two recommendations that I would put forward. One is a book called The Water Walker by Joanne Robertson, which really talks about a movement, um, grassroots movement of indigenous grandmothers reclaiming ancestral ways and walking for the health of the Great Lakes, um, as well as global waters. And so that book is, uh, it's a children's picture book, but it's geared for all ages. Um, so you just type in The Water Walker by Joanne Robertson and you can uh, purchase that uh, from any of your uh, retailers. And then uh, lastly would be, you know, um, when we opened up this conversation again, we talked about the water protectors at Standing Rock. And there is a new book called We Are Water Protectors by Carol Lindstrom with illustrations that won a, Cal a Caldecott medal by uh, Michaela Good. It is a beautifully illustrated book that really talks about why we need to prioritize restoring our connection to water and protecting water. Great, thank you. Um, so, you know, you talked a lot about sort of our legal system and, and these property rights and individual rights. And, and it just, I wonder, you know, what, what, does a, what does a legal system that's more based on the responsibility to, um, to, to manage or, or to steward water and air and all these things. What, I mean, it's such a huge concept, um, but what, what does that to you look like? And how do you, how do we get there? I mean, can we get there sooner than later? <laughs> I sure hope so. I mean, I think with the IPCC report, our current state, at, state of our climate crisis, we need to get there sooner than later. Um, our earlier projections around uh, climatic changes are now moved up. The timeline has moved up. And so we are in a state of necessary immediate action. And so I'm hopeful that that will, will catalyze more people to act, to be more uh, conscientious when they go to the ballot box about who they're voting for, what type of platform they have in relation to uh, environmental protection and climate change. Those are really important ways that everyday citizens can shape the future of our planet. That said, I think you know, we also need to be um, conscientious about redistributing our actions towards the environment. And what do I mean by that? I think it means that we have to think about redistributing the way in which property rights operate in relation to the natural world in the United States and globally. Um, shifting from a property rights or a rights-based framework to a responsibility-based framework is challenging, but not impossible. And there's many ways that um, Western nations can learn from indigenous nations who already in many instances have legal systems that are responsibility-based frameworks um, and have been operating that way for hundreds, if not millennia, uh, hundreds of years, if not millennia. 
And so that is an important way, again, for us to be communicating with one another, sharing best practices. So hopefully we can envision a legal system, a governance system of the future that is uh, more responsibility-based than rights-based. And, and ultimately that means that as humans, we have to learn to give up a few of our comforts or conveniences in line with protecting the environment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in a, in a few minutes, we're going to turn to questions uh, for the audience. If you have questions, uh, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them uh, to at the city club. That's all one word, no, uh, no hyphens or anything. Uh, and we'll try to work them in. And so there's already one in here. Um, and the question for you, Dr. Leonard, is so specifically, if we extended personhood to the Great Lakes, how would that transform the Great Lakes Water Compact and other legal agreements cur currently being used? Such a good question. Um, so firstly, it would require many of our existing legal agreements um, to be revised and amended in, in many uh, instances. They probably could still operate simultaneously, but it would be a, a good governance step to review those documents to see where they might need to be modernized to meet uh, the potential new mandate or future mandate of an extension of, of recognition of the inherent rights um, of, of the Great Lakes and, and their legal personality or, or uh, legal entity aspect. Um, that said, I think also how it could trans, which I think is maybe where your question is going, how could this transform our existing governance of the Great Lakes? I think it actually could, could give us a lot more opportunity for localized transboundary governance. So really what that would mean is in recognizing the legal personality of the Great Lakes, that's the first step. And, and likely you probably would recognize the personality of each lake, um, and then and and maybe there would be sort of a larger arm of that uh, of that coordination of each of those lake personalities, maybe through one of the existing bodies like the International Joint Commission. But let's just play out this case scenario. We recognize, for instance, the legal personality of Lake Erie. In doing so, then you also have to think about enforcement. After you recognize that legal personality, how do you actually implement it? How do you put it into action? One option, although not the only option, is to potentially set up a guardianship body. Basically, an entity that can be a voice for the lake. And the way that's a little bit different than what we have right now is the guardianship body is charged with protecting the interests of the lake, not the interests of human beings, which is currently our status quo. So again, playing out the case scenario, we set up that guardianship body, and you actually then also get to determine who should be a voice for the lake. So you might have more of a democratization of water governance happening in the Great Lakes, because you might get grassroots leaders, you might get um, maybe some faith-based leaders, you might get indigenous peoples in that guardianship body, you might have governments represented. Currently right now, in the context of the Great Lakes Water Compact, that is mostly just between states and the provinces. The Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement is between the United States and Canada. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the Indigenous Nation Treaties are between those Indigenous nations and uh, likely the United States or Canada, depending on the context. But there isn't something that formally gets all of those different governance entities, as well as just local, everyday people together to inform the governance of the lake. And so, a grant of legal personality, or, or, or rather a recognition of legal personality and the recognition of those inherent rights of Lake Erie could allow for us to have more of a democratic form of water governance where the benefits are more, uh, the benefits of decision making are more equally distributed among everyday citizens and, and those who have expertise and, and leadership and, and a voice to contribute for water justice and, and the protection of the lakes more broadly. I hope that answered your question, but please feel free to add any additional subsequent questions. Thanks, Kelsey. Uh, here's a question. Oral history and traditional knowledge of indigenous people is often dismissed and ignored. 
But lo and behold, several examples have made national news that their knowledge is actually correct. What should our researchers, scientists, and even elected officials in the Great Lakes region do to better tap into traditional knowledge and indigenous oral histories of Great Lakes tribal nations? Oh, I love that question. Thank you for it. Uh, I think one of the reasons I love this question, but I'm also a little like, uh, I, I took a sigh there, was because I wish we didn't exist in a world where indigenous knowledge and science had to be validated by Western science. Rather, that our science could be accepted in the same way that we accept Western science or other scientific traditions and disciplines around the world. Um, I'm hopeful that we're, we're getting there, um, but I think it, it backlogs a lot of our ability to innovate in spaces for Great Lakes protection because we're spending so much resources and time confirming what indigenous peoples already know rather than coming together to co-develop research questions and scientific practices that could move us forward rather than just validating what we already know to be true. So I think that's a first step um, is, is getting folks to, to be, to come together to, to co-develop research priorities. Um, I also think that a big part of that work is ensuring that there are dedicated research funding streams for these types of initiatives and scientific undertakings. So for much of the, if we think about the past 50 years of scientific study funding, it has largely not been inclusive of indigenous science or partnerships with indigenous researchers to allow for indigenous led studies. And so if we really are trying to transform the systems and the type of knowledge that inform the best available data for Great Lakes decision making, we need to put basically our money where our mouth is and we need to allow for there to be greater federal dollars, state dollars, think tank research dollars dedicated to uh, the, the future building of these indigenous research priorities. Yeah. The question reminds me of a, we, we were in British Columbia on a program a few years ago and there had been a study breathlessly reporting that the wolves in British Columbia eat salmon and the local uh, uh, First Nation uh, was like, well, yeah, we knew that 12,000 years ago, but thank you. Yeah, and these studies just keep coming out. I mean, they're, they're cool in the sense that we're, we're glad you're getting on the same page as us, but you know, the one just came out recently that, uh, said, that identified that grizzly bear populations, again, in British Columbia, um, they align with indigenous language families um, in terms of their DNA codes. And, and indigenous people from the region are like, uh, yeah, there are relatives, uh, we know this, we have stories about us you know, speaking to one another. And so, uh, I, yeah, I just, I think you know, from the indigenous side, it's like, why did you waste all that money doing that when we could have just told you that that's what we know? Um, but you know, some really cool science, I think, still coming out of it. And hopefully, if that's what it takes to you know, get folks to be on board with prioritizing indigenous-led research, then I guess more power to it. Yeah, yeah, it's a step, you know. Um, okay, here's another question. What is the best way for advocates in the Great Lakes region to stay up to date with the happenings and best practices and initiatives in the water justice slash earth law space? Oh, really great. So there are amazing organizations in the region doing really wonderful work. Uh, I think in the context of earth law uh, and rights of nature, you may wanna follow a few organizations um, like the Global Alliance for Rights of Nature, GARN, Earth Law Center. Uh, you can just kind of type these names into Google and they will come up. In the context of even the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, you can learn a lot from CELDIF, which is the Community Environmental Defense Fund League. I may have gotten some of the acronyms of that wrong, but um, CELDIF was also really instrumental in much of the, the Lake Erie Bill of Rights work. So there are organizations working in this space to promote these initiatives. Uh, there also are everyday you know, governments, uh, everyday local community organizations that may be working to advance these initiatives as well. Uh, the IJC, uh, the International Joint Commission, has a wonderful website. It's being updated. There's constantly news there where you can go and learn more, and they host webinars and information sessions. They also are on Twitter, so follow them there if you want any uh, additional updates in relation to the state of the Great Lakes. They also have a newsletter, so you can sign up there and get regular uh, um, 
communication around the state of the Great Lakes. Outside of that, I'd look to your local environmental, uh, you know, resource department, um, you know, DNR agency, and see if they have a community newsletter or a water or Great Lakes newsletter. Sometimes they do. And it's a great way to stay engaged. Uh, again, outside of that, social media, Twitter, I think, is a great place to follow different uh, environmental uh, organizations as well as department agencies for their current happenings. Great. These are all excellent questions. Keep them coming. Uh, here's another. I live in Lakewood. I'm astounded th at the amount of pesticide applications applied to lakefront properties, which leach into Lake Erie, compromising the health of not only the lake, but everyone dependent upon the lake for water. We have what the world wants and needs, but we are lousy stewards of this great resource. I can't do this by myself. What can you suggest? Really, really great question. Um, and, and just, you know, comment sharing your experience in, in Lakewood. Uh, I would say, firstly, to hopefully not feel so, so alone. Um, we actually, through the International Joint Commission and the Great Lakes Water Quality Board, we have a, um, an, a regional poll happening right now, a Great Lakes poll. We do it about every um, two to three years. The last one we conducted in 2018 actually found that 88% of Great Lakes residents want to see the Great Lakes protected um, and would be willing to pay more to do so, would be willing to, to, to be active. So I think I, I share that with you to say, I think there probably are neighbors or colleagues or, or folks in your community that want to help uh, to protect the water in your region. So, so, so look to that. Maybe there's a community organization that you can join or that you can form um, if you're in a township or a city, uh, look to see if you could put forward as a citizen a resolution uh, recognizing the inherent rights of, of Lake Erie um, or of the particular tributary that you may be concerned with there being any type of leaching or pollution into. These are definitely common concerns that we heard from residents of the Great Lakes from pollution to algae blooms to invasive species. Um, in our 2018 poll, it was, it was resounding the threats to, to the Great Lakes. And so now it's really just got to pick a threat and start working to fix it. And, and so, you know, with your own community, uh, whatever you can do to mobilize community actors to, to, you know, work together to address the concern, that's where you start. And really do look to uh, your local municipality and then also potentially even to the communications coming out of the International Joint Commission. Maybe there's a way where there could be support there as well. Great. Uh, next question. Right now, bottled water companies pulling billions of gallons of water from our Great Lakes under contracts with states that are almost comical. How are we? How can we better govern private companies' use and misuse of our Great Lakes? Thank you to uh, the audience member for contributing that question. It is a real concern in terms of the level of water extraction that's happening in, in the Great Lakes. I will say uh, in one context, I'll, I'll give an example even to our previous audience member question of local community action can go a long way. We had um, a bottled water operating uh, plant in uh, sort of outside of Guelph, Ontario, which again is on that uh, Haldeman Track Treaty lands that I mentioned earlier of the Six Nations of the Grand River. And local indigenous youth actually led uh, an action and a movement against that, that bottling company, Nestle, and, and they, they put pressure on them for a good three to five years and Nestle recently um, exited from that, that watering plant and uh, that bottled water plant and, and have ceased extraction of that groundwater, which was taking groundwater from, from area groundwater resources of the Six Nations of the Grand River, who was one First Nation that has been on um, intermittent boil water advisories for decades. And so um, that is one example where community action really just going and, and making your voice heard was actually, actually very successful. Aside from that type of community action, I think that's also, you know, this is an example, prime example of where earth law could sh shift the types of uh, ways in which we allow for water extraction in the region, particularly because you say, well, what does the water body need? What does the lake need to exist, thrive, and, and um, naturally evolve? And if groundwater extraction is going to impact those lake levels, 
then the guardianship body would likely deem that a violation of the lake's rights. And so there's really unique, innovative ways where uh, a recognition of legal personality and earth law of natural entities can actually work to combat some of these more challenging aspects of groundwater management and extraction. Thanks. Uh, next question. As you know, water is not just for drinking, but is home to so many edible plants, fish, and other wildlife that rely on clean water. What efforts are there by indigenous people to protect this wildlife? And how can non-natives join these efforts? Well, thank you so much for that question. And I think it resonates with so many uh, residents of the Great Lakes Basin. Uh, again, from that 2018 poll, about 79% of respondents, uh, we had over 4,000 respondents for that poll from residents of all around the Great Lakes Basin, about 79% said, we should be protecting the lakes so that we can protect fish and wildlife. Um, you know, a few others mentioned you know, other reasons to protect the lakes, but that was one of the resounding top reasons. And so when we think about you know, indigenous peoples, what are they doing to protect wildlife? There are some really great uh, wetland restoration programs that are happening right now. Um, I mentioned Walpole Island First Nation. They have a wonderful environment and cultural heritage center that works in the protection of their unique habitat and, e and wetland ecosystems. Uh, they're on a, they're sort of in a, a wetland uh, space and an island uh, along the St. Clair River, and it's just a really unique habitat that that their stewardship is really leading the charge. Um, I'd also mention the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission does a lot of scientific research in the Great Lakes uh, region to protect uh, Monoman wild rice, as I mentioned earlier. So I think any effort um, in those spaces that you can contribute to, there's organizations like Honor the Earth, which also has done a lot of significant work to protect wild rice. Um, those would be areas that you could tap into to support um, as a non-native and help to join these efforts. Outside of that, I mean, the current occupation uh, and against the Line 3 pipeline uh, is actually an effort to protect wildlife and fish and, and all of the, the beauty of, um, you know, the Minnesota portion of, of Great Lakes Basin. And so uh, you can contribute by donating to those water protectors and land defenders, their legal defense funds. Those are great ways to actually, in a roundabout way, protect wildlife. Yeah. You mentioned the 2018 poll. Um, can you just let folks uh, who are interested know where they can find that? And I think you mentioned in an earlier conversation that there's a 2021 update coming soon, correct? Yes. And so I, am, I think maybe the City Club will hopefully be able to share a link. Um, but there is a 2021 ongoing Great Lakes Regional Poll that's happening right now. I think it actually may have just closed, but you might have gotten some city club communication related to submitting to the online poll. But if you didn't, don't worry. Um, the results will be coming out uh, that later this fall. You can find communications about that poll at IJC.org. Um, that's where all of the updates will be provided. Uh, if you didn't get to participate this round, you didn't get a phone call or didn't get to submit online, um, we do it every two to three years, so uh, definitely sign up for the IJC, news, uh, IJC newsletter and you'll be able to contribute at a future point in time. But if you want to find those 2018 results, again, go to IJC.org um, and you can type into the search bar um, 2018 poll and uh, many news articles as well as the full final report will come up for you. Great. Uh, so the next question is regarding earth law and the personhood doctrine. Can you discuss this in context of the droughts in the West? This would seem to point to the need for urgency around implementation of earth law and the personhood doctrine. Yes. And I, and I would just say, I think, I think you said it perfectly. Um, we are dealing with massive amounts of, of drought in the West, also in the context of the, the heat wave that we saw um, earlier, I guess earlier this this I guess earlier in July for the West Coast, um, we were still extracting water and reducing water levels from areas that, if that water level had main, had been maintained rather than extracting it for agriculture or other uses, we wouldn't have had as many fish kills um, because that water level helps to keep those ecosystems cool during that massive heat wave. And so, there is a way in which Earth Law can actually say. How do we maintain water levels? How do we maintain environmental flows so that we are protecting those ecosystems that need to thrive within that water system? 
And, and so that is the hope of Earth Law, that it can help us to address these pressing climatic changes, droughts included. When we think about the Southwest right now, we think about the, it's really over appropriation of water. And, and they're realizing it right now. There is not, when they, when they set the levels of appropriation of water, they set them at levels that were from the mid, early to mid 1900s. Our climate has changed. So those water appropriations are not changing or growing or adapting to the climatic changes that we're seeing. So we now have an over appropriation of water. There is not enough water to meet the appropriations that were made 50 to 100 years ago. And, and people are going to be in a massive amount of conflict over waters of the West, more so than we've seen in the past 50 decades. And the waters of the West have always been categorized as a place of, of conflict. Um, and so unfortunately, it only seems to be getting worse. And in so much, because of that, we need to think about what are innovative ways that we can adapt and build more resilient systems. Um, that is not only through law, it can be through policy and engineering and other types of um, innovative mechanisms, but the law has to follow along too. And, and in large part, these earth law initiatives may be a pathway forward for us to at least respond in, with immediacy. Earth law is not, in, in promoting earth law, it's not necessarily going to be a, a catch-all, you know, one size fits all fix for, for the planet. It's, it, it, it needs to be localized, it needs to be context specific, and Earthlaw may not be around for, you know, for millennia, but it is a good point of emerging law to allow for us to transition to a more just world, to a more just climate ready, climate responsive planet. Yeah, it does seem like it has a better chance uh, than these point in time sort of laws we've been operating with, you know, for the last several hundred years. Um, Okay, the next question. I read that tribes in Michigan are currently fighting to shut down Line 5. They even found ancient stone formations at the bottom of Lake Huron. What is Line 5, and is this pipeline dangerous for the Great Lakes? Yes, so I think you've captured Line 5. It's, it's another pipeline um, allowing for a transmission of um, petroleum, actually south, to the Gulf from what I understand of the transmission route. Um, really, I think at this stage, we have sufficient number of pipelines um, to allow for the transportation of petroleum. And even so, we need to be thinking, you know, given the IPCC report, given our current climate crisis, we need to be thinking about divesting from fossil fuels, from transitioning away from fossil fuels, from investing the funds that we would put into pipeline proliferation of line five and line three into renewable energy sources and into ensuring that we have energy justice for the future of America and, uh, and Canada in these transboundary waters, as well as for indigenous peoples. And right now, what we're seeing in the context of line five and line three is a disproportionate burden of, of the potential collapse of those pipelines being born or, or, or having to be um, uh, held by indigenous nations and peoples. So again, it's an environmental injustice concern because these pipelines they're not being routed through rich, affluent communities. They're being routed through indigenous, um, poor, uh, economically disenfranchised uh, people of color communities. And so that is really something that, that needs to be addressed when we think about energy justice and we think about the proliferation, if there has to be proliferation of, of, of continued petroleum pipelines, that, that we balance uh, you know, the, the costs and the benefits. And we, and we really just try and transition we're at a really opportune time to, to not be promoting the continued proliferation of these, of these types of pipelines. Okay. Um, the next question, what is the role of the philanthropic se uh, sector in the personhood of water and support of indigenous people? Money? <laughs> um, I, I mean, even more so than that, the philanthropic sector has a vast network of connectedness to world leaders, to decision makers, to also innovative thinkers um, and, and leaders who may be wanting to change uh, the status quo. And that is how the philanthropic community can contribute. Earth law, recognizing the personhood of water and other natural entities, indigenous rights, 
these are all spaces in which we need to upend and transform and change the status quo because the status quo is not working for the planet and it's not working for indigenous peoples. And so the philanthropic sector, both through their political power, their um, global power can help, um, you know, in that power dynamic through their, uh, to be able to leverage these under voiced communities into that international conversation. And sometimes they may, that may come through money or funding, but it also may come through um, directing and, and, and enabling conversations that allow for there to be the exchange of ideas because the exchange of ideas is what, is what leads to transformative change for our, our global governance system. Yeah, I know too in, our, in some of our, um, uh, well, there, there's some sensitivity around phil philanthropic endeavors um, when they give money um, to, you know, sort of dictate how it's spent. And there does seem to be uh, a new sensitivity among the philanthropic community uh, around that, um, which is yeah. probably a whole different conversation for another day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, follow <laughs> what Dave said. I mean, give money and don't have strings attached to, to the gifting of that. You know, really, if, I feel like if you are investing those funds, you should know in, in selecting those entities why you're investing. And you should, in that selection, trust them to be able to meet the mission and vision of their, of their organization or of their um, movement. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think any philanthropic entity that, that tries to control um, those folks on the ground trying to do good work I, I, is a bit disingenuous. Yeah. Okay, last question. Many Ohioans view the lake only as a place for recreation, boating, water sports, etc. How do we work to change the viewpoints of those who don't view our Great Lake as a living entity worthy of rights and protections? AKA, what's the elevator pitch to convince friends and family to support these efforts? Really, really great question. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, a lot of folks do value their recreation more than the lake itself uh, or the rights of the lake itself to exist, thrive, and naturally evolve. I find, though, that sometimes it's because they've never engaged with the lake outside of recreation. Like, they've never formed a connection to the lake that doesn't serve a personal enjoyment benefit. Uh, and so sometimes trying to find ways to foster those more diverse, more plural experiences of, connection, of connecting to the lake can help to transform folks as to why the lake needs protection and why the lake has rights itself. I'll give you a, a better example of what I mean. When we think about folks prioritizing their recreation, they do so often because they're going to really pristine, beautiful parts of the lake. They've never, and, and they enjoy the lake because when they go there and it's pristine and it's beautiful and they, they get to, you know, jet ski and boat, the lake is happy because it's healthy and it fills them with joy because that lake is alive and it has spirit and it is, it is thriving. But those same people haven't been to the lake or the portion of the lake where it's filled with an algae bloom, where it's filled with, you know, sewage outflow, where it is really, really disgusting. People don't go to parts of the lake where they don't feel like they can swim or drink or fish or, or boat in. But maybe they need to. Maybe if they did, they'd realize that there are ways in which the lake needs to be able to just exist, thrive, and naturally evolve outside of your, and independent from your human need to recreate. So that's my best case example of where I've actually seen that work, particularly with some of my students, to, to go and visit a water body closest to you and don't just visit the portion that you think looks pretty, visit the entirety of the water body. And that really changes folks' perspective on why rights of water is really important. Okay. Thanks so much, Dr. Leonard. We really appreciate it. This is the part where Dan Moltrup appears and snatches the microphone out of my hand. That's right. That's right. Dave, thank you so much for moderating our conversation. Dr. Leonard is absolutely fantastic. I want to tell you that our forum today is um, we, it's our annual Hope and Stanley Edelstein Memorial Forum. And Hope and Stanley were environmental advocates. They supported the Nature Center at, at Shaker Lakes. They were, 
they supported all sorts of efforts around conservation of Lake Erie. And, um, and Stanley himself uh, was an attorney and he would have loved this conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for bringing your ideas here to the City Club today. Tavutney, thank you for having me. Dave, thanks again. Kelsey thank Leonard is an assistant professor at the School of the Environment, of Environment Resources and Sustainability at the University of Waterloo. She's also an enrolled citizen of the Shinnecock Nation. Dave Spratt, CEO at the Institutes for Journalism and Natural Resources. Our forum today, I mentioned it's the Stanley and Hope Edelstein Endowed Forum on the Environment. And it's also part of our Sustainable Northeast Ohio series, sponsored by Bank of America. We thank them for their support. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free, thanks to generous support from B of A, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. And you can join them in supporting our mission of conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive by making a contribution online or becoming a member and or, or texting the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582 to make a contribution. Be sure to join us tomorrow, August 20th, for our in-person forum featuring Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries. He's Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, and he'll be talking about critical race theory, specifically what it is and what it is not. I think you'll find it illuminating. And we'll also talk about how this framework of analysis has become a new punching bag for the culture wars in our nation. Next Thursday, August 26th, we also have an in-person forum welcome, welcoming Tom Mahalovich. He's the CEO and president of the Cleveland Clinic and Cliff Majerian, the new CEO and uh, at the university, at university hospitals. They've been partnering on a great deal since COVID began, which is a new, uh, a new mode of collaboration for both entities. They were traditionally competitors, as you well know, I'm sure. Tickets are still available for both of these forums, but only a few, so please Get in there and purchase tickets quickly. You can learn about these and any of our other upcoming forums or see our archives at cityclub.org. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Dan Malthrop. We'll see you soon. Our forum is adjourned.